Any uh, announcements, Tom, that we need to be aware of? Uh, I, I don't have anything to say, Ron. Okay. Well, um, I don't know who you're pulling for today. Joe Moore, as you know, is a Philadelphia, diehard Philadelphia Eagles fan. I'm an NFC East guy because some of you know me. I'm a Washington Redskins, Redskins fan. In fact, I wear my Redskins sweatshirt around, and people stop me in H-E-B and go, man, you're brave. I say, why are you doing that? I said, for three reasons. I'm a lifelong Redskins fan. Number two, it's totally politically incorrect. <laughs> and thirdly, I'm going to teach you a little bit of Texas sports history. I go, what? I said, before 1961, the team of Texas, NFL team, was the Washington Redskins. It was the only team in the South, from Maryland down to Texas. There was no other so, and when Sammy Ball was quarterback from TCU, and so if you talk to somebody over 80 years old, they probably were Texan. They were Skins fans, and uh, so anyway. But I, I said to I said to Joe, I'm going to hold my nose today and root for the Eagles. Kind of like if you remember 2005, UT was playing USC for the national championship, and A&M came out with the classiest. T-shirt, and I kicked myself I didn't buy one. It was maroon with white lettering. It said, for just this one time, gig'em horns. And I thought, I thought that, was, that was classy. That was classy. What year was that? 2005. That was the year Highland Park High School in Dallas won the state championship, which my son played on that team. And those that were graduates of UT and, and uh, Highland Park High School had T-shirts made up, you know, national and state champions, you know. They do all kinds of stuff like that in Dallas. Well, let's pray. We're going to get into, this is our final session, basically on how to navigate a culture of darkness, death, and tyranny uh, as a biblically faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this crisp, sunny Sunday morning. We pray that what we do here today would build up the body of Christ and encourage us to live sold out as followers of Christ amidst our current culture. Uh, guide me in my words. May I not lead anybody astray. And may we all leave here built up in Christ for whatever it is you call us to do and how to, and to wherever you're calling us to go. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, famous last words. We talk about it all the time. Last words are famous. Uh, my boyhood hero was Stonewall, Stonewall Jackson. His last words were, let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. And uh, last words are important. What were Jesus' last words? Anybody know? No. That was his last words before he died. What was his last words before he ascended to heaven? I'll read them for you. They're the last, toward the end of Matthew's gospel. Um, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you look at point number six on the Barman Declaration, their scripture they begin with at the top there is only half of the Great Commission, only the part I'll be with you. I want to look at the whole, uh, whole Great Commission. That's Jesus' last words. And the most important thing you can take away from them in terms of navigating the current culture is Jesus is not saying, do this, carry out the Great Commission, when things are going great and the culture's backing up the church, these cover any and all cultural situations. The church is never to circle the wagons and go, woe is us, we're victims, we're persecuted, so we better hunker down. You know, have you ever seen Jehovah's Witnesses' kingdom halls? They have one thing in common. They have no windows. I often wonder why that is. Well, they're, they're kind of in darkness, literally. 
but the church is to have windows. We're looking out on the world. We're not boarding up and, and circling the wagons. That is not what God's calling us to. It doesn't matter how bad the culture. I think that's the statement Barman is making to the German Christians. It's bad out here. Hitler's in charge. People are getting killed, but we're not. They went underground, but they're going out. The other uh, verse they cite is it says the word of God is unfettered. You cannot, you know, uh, somebody asked uh, Dwight or no, Charles Spurgeon, how do you defend the word of God? He said the same way you defend a lion, you just let it loose. And so uh, Jesus' last words to us in the midst of this culture is not to focus on how do we survive, but how do we carry out the Great Commission no matter what's going on out there in the world. Um, I don't know if you watched the State of the Union address and the rebuttal and all that stuff. I didn't. I went and watched Everyone Loves Raymond. And, but I heard a clip of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, or whatever her name is, afterwards she said, are you going to join Team Normal or Team Crazy? I don't think Christians should join either of those teams. I think we're called by Jesus to be on Team Truth. I, I googled how much of the State of Union address was lies. They came up with a CNN analysis and some conservative analysis. CNN said everything was true. The other one said everything was a lie. What is going on? The, the reason that's happening, I've never seen it in my lifetime before. I mean, it's almost like you could say the sky is blue and somebody else says, no, it's red. And, well, true story. This is 19... 86, we had started a ministry at Alamo High School called Curios. It's still going on. And uh, we started it at Christ Lutheran Church. We asked them if we could use their fellowship hall. And they ended up kicking us off campus because we were too evangelistic. And because me and the guy that started, Tommy Michelson, we were, you know, every once in a while we were asking kids, have you come to Christ? We were giving them invitations and everything else. And uh, so we scrambled to find another place to meet, which we ended up in the mule stall, which doesn't exist anymore. But that ministry is still going on in the visitor's locker room every Wednesday. And uh, we invited other youth ministers in town to be a part of this. Well, they all rebelled against us, too. Because, and the guy at, I won't name the church, but uh, we had a meeting at Jim's up on Austin Highway. And they were trying to convince us not, we don't have to, you know, win kids to Christ and all this stuff. And this youth minister said, my students are very offended because they've all been confirmed. They're already Christians. They don't want to hear this. And I said, well, I've got a lot of kids there too, and they've gone through confirmation class, and I know they're not Christians, so I'm going to keep doing it. And I'll, this is my first encounter with postmodernism, and I didn't understand at the time. And I got in an argument with this guy, Gracious argument, we weren't fighting or anything. And um, I remember he turned to me and said, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. I never heard that before. And being, I think scientifically, I remember I looked at a wall there in Jim's, it was painted white, and I said, so you're telling me that that wall may not be white? And he said, it might not be. Maybe it is for you but it might not be for me. I said, I can get a gas uh, chromatograph and do an analysis of that paint, and it'll prove scientifically that it's white. He said, that may or may not convince me. They're saying that what we are living in right now is a, a post-truth society, that people are so partisan on either side that what they believe is true, they will not give on it. Even if you present the facts, if the facts line up with what helps their side, they claim it. If it doesn't, they just say, well, get in a discussion about abortion. Everything scientifically now backs up 
the pro-life position. And babies are getting more and more viable at less and lesser weeks. None of that will change. You can present all the evidence. I've never seen one person turn around and change. It works on both sides. And I find myself tempted by that. I read some. If, if I like it, then that must be true. And I don't even check it out. And if I don't like it, it can't be true. We should be on a tr team truth, pursuing truth with a capital T. Because if Jesus is correct when he said, I am the truth, if you and I doggedly pursue the truth, we will wind up in the arms of Christ. And on the right side of history, that's the new thing, isn't it? So I'm challenging you to join Team Truth. Um, 28, 23 years ago, uh, I became pastor of church in Dallas, and, I, and we went to a convention, uh, PCUSA convention at First Pres Orlando, and they had a speaker named Leonard Sweet. He's a Christian futurist, He's a really engaging guy. And we had just, I got to Highland Park Pres, and they had a mission statement. I had a hunch that nobody knew what it was. So I went to my first staff meeting, and I said, what's the mission statement of this church? And everybody was, something about Jesus. Then I went to a steering council meeting. They're the ones supposed to be steering the ship. I said, what's the mission statement of this church? There's about 30 people on there. Nobody knew it. Now, 88% of American churches are stagnant or in decline, dying. 80% of American churches don't have a mission statement. Could there be a correlation between the two? I don't know. Uh, but the circumstantial evidence is pretty weighty. Uh, then I went to my first session meeting. I asked the elders of the church. They're the guys in charge. What's the mission of this church? Nobody could say. I said, we need to chunk this mission statement we have and get a task force together and hammer out one that we all can own because I don't really like the one they had. And so they, they did that. Well, I go to this conference, and Leonard Sweet gets up and says, how many of these churches here today have a mission statement or are working on one? <laughs> Raised my hand. Just about every hand in the place went up, you know. I was feeling really good. I'll never forget. He leaned over the pulpit and said, why? Why would you be doing that? Jesus gave us the mission of the church, and it's never changed. It's Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Go into all the world, make disciples. We've got a stained glass window down there on the right side of the sanctuary. Jesus saying that very thing. And yet the church tries to get involved in everything else but sometimes. So if you leave here with nothing else today in terms of how do we navigate this culture out here, do not circle the wagons of your life. Do not take a victim mentality or self-preservation type of approach to life. We are all called to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's not just the church's job. That's every individual Christian. Now, you, this is part of the macro will of God. The micro, how do you do that? I don't know. It may be that you start getting friendly with a cashier at HEB who's maybe from Somalia. And you say, what country are you from? And strike up a conversation and let, let the Holy Spirit do what he's going to do by building a relationship with that person. I don't know. It may be standing on a street corner proclaiming the gospel. Who wants to do that? I used to walk in downtown San Antonio a lot down to the main library to get films for youth ministry here. And there was a guy down across from Travis Park every week with a megaphone. And sometimes he had his family with him, and they were all dressed in dirty clothes, and he's out there screaming about Jesus. And I'd go by and go, oh, brother, man, this is awful. Then one day, the San Antonio Light ran a story on the guy. And they interviewed people that had come to Christ. And one in particular was a bank president in downtown San Antonio. It wasn't Bob Seal here at First Prayer, uh, who said, you know, the Lord will use weird things to get you. He's, and he, here's, what, here's what his quote was. I would never walk up the stairs of that first Presbyterian church over there, but God got me through this guy screaming through a microphone. And I said, 
We're on skates. Repent. And don't criticize us. He's winning people to Christ. That's not the way I feel called to do it. But you've got to figure out what's God's micro will for you to carry out the Great Commission. That's between you and the Lord. But if you're saying, well, don't be like the guy who came up to Dwight L. Moody and said, Dr. Moody, I don't like the way you do evangelism. And Moody said to him, well, you know, I really don't like it either. How do you do it? He said, I don't. Moody said, I like my way better. <laughs> so find out, pursue the truth by finding out what's God's micro will for you. And while you're doing that, you're going to find yourself navigating this culture and maybe changing the culture in ways you uh, never uh, have imagined. Again, the Barman Declaration is really affirming in the midst of Nazi Germany, this whole idea of freedom versus form. And I keep going back to this Latin phrase, rex lex, king law versus law king. This is the way it was up until the Reformation. All the kings of the world said, we make the law. What we say goes in the kingdom. And in the Reformation, Samuel Rutherford in Scotland said, no, you got it backwards. It's law, the law of God. And the king is just like anybody else. You come under and after the law. And you must, anytime you have a two-tiered justice system, which tyranny creates, you get this. I'm afraid in our nation right now we're heading this way. I hate to say that about the country I love, but it's the truth. Truth. Team truth means you're going to work for this. You know, our rights are not government-given rights. They're God-given rights. That's the only way you're not going to be a racist. If you think, well, if the government says I have to love all people, then I'm not going to get it. But if God says you have to, that's why I'm a recovering racist. I was fortunate to grow up in a segregated area where all the churches in town were segregated except mine. I went to Presbyterian Church of the Atonement, Associate Reform Presbyterian Church, big mission church, all the inner varsity and campus crusade, young life people went there. And it was a big missions church. So we had blacks and Hispanics and Asians, not because our pastor preached integration, but because it was a big missions church. All these blacks were from Africa. And during the week, I was a practicing racist, and I was taught and told by the government. We had segregated drinking fountains and all that kind of stuff. But every Sunday I was reminded that there's a law higher. And I knew that was wrong. I knew my church was right. Uh, until I was an adult, I actually began to pull out of that. But my church was here. The United States was here during the whole segregation thing. And yet we're heading back there, flipping it around. That's tyranny. Freedom versus form. The, the German Christians saw as Hitler took control. I mean, he became more and more of a dictator and creating more and more laws that, that fenced the church in. Actually, he took over the church. You gotta take over or exterminate the church if you're going to create a real tyranny that works. The church is usually the last bastion against tyranny. So Hitler did all he could to take over the German church. It was harder for him to do um, in a way during then because the church was part of the state. And he didn't want to exterminate the church because it's exterminating part of his realm. So he just tried to take it over. Here in the United States, I think we're just we're seeing us marginalized, 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 and attacked. And the laws they're making pretty soon, you know, if somebody comes here and tries to get a job at first pres and they don't, and their lifestyle is an alternative lifestyle, and we say, well, that's not, you don't know what's going to happen. It's happening in Canada, and it won't be long until it comes across the border, I think. So, you know, freedom without form 
is chaos. Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. So it's this, there's law, uh, not just winning people to Christ. The problem with the church across the world, you know, the church is burgeoning everywhere in the world except one place, United States. We're in the bottom. But the big, my big qualm about the world majority of churches, people are coming to Christ, but they're not being discipled. They're not being taught to obey and, you know, come to Jesus and, okay, you're done. No. Uh, and that's the bane of the American church. That's why we're so weak, because we just get people to join and we don't really disciple them. Uh, Chris Scruggs is going to begin next week with a whole series on uh, different takes on disciple making. So that's obedience to which go and make, not converts, Jesus says, make disciples. Those are people that have a understanding of, they have understanding of the three ordinary means of grace. They know the word of God, they're in it, they know how to pray, have a relationship with Christ, and they're regular in worship, reception of the sacrament. So freedom with no forms, chaos, all form without any freedom is tyranny. And I believe our culture out there is heading toward the form thing right now. If you listened, I didn't listen to the thing, but I listened to a clip of it afterwards. Somebody said the most dangerous thing that was said last, was it Tuesday, is our president said, I'm going to work for everyone to have a living wage. Sounds good. What's wrong with that? Think about it. Are you, are you ready to get your next stimulus check or whatever they're calling it? I cringe. What a tyranny does, it, you know, let them eat cake. A tyranny tries to make people dependent upon the government, call it a nanny state or whatever you call it. Think about it. A living wage. Everybody has a living wage. Boy, nobody's going to be poor. Also gets rid of all incentive. And any time you have the government taking care of you, you're done. Reagan was right when he said, beware when the government says, we're here to help you. He says, run. The, the US system of government was never set up to take care of the people. It was to free them to take care of themselves and each other. I cringe when some of my fellow uh, Lex Rex people say, you know, we need to enforce a rule of law. Read the original language in the Founding Fathers. Rule of law with compassion. It was always, the U.S. is set up to take care of the rights of the minority and to help those that can't make it but not just give handouts, but a hand up. So um, beware of the nanny state. It feels good, then all of a sudden you realize, they got me. That's where we're headed if we're not careful. Um, one final word on the Great Commission. Uh, not to kick a dead horse, but our previous denomination. If anybody ever comes to you and says, I don't think we should have left that denomination. Say, so did you realize that the PCUSA has totally dismantled its mission board? Go talk to Bob Fuller. Bob's on the Outreach Foundation board. They actually came to their board meeting and said, we're defunding all missionaries, getting rid of them all. Would you take some? And the Outreach Foundation said, we'll go through and we can't support them all, but we'll try to save as many as we can that are really missionaries, not just social justice warriors. That's our previous domination. They just took the Great Commission and threw it in the dustbin. So talk about off the rails. Um, one of the things Barman does, um, although it doesn't specifically say this, but there's a big rejection there. And if you look at your sheet, it's rejection of uh, narcissism. This whole idea that it's all about me how am I doing? And Barman and Scripture wants to be sure that we never get there. 
that we must keep the kingdom of God above everything before your family, before the United States of America. If I put anything above the kingdom of God, I've just fallen into the trap of idolatry. And, you know, Lex Rex help us, helps us to remember this. This is, you know, government, the king. This is the law of God. It's got to take precedence above everything. If God says this, do this, we ought to be doing it. If he says don't do it, best we don't. Um, even if the government declares it legal, there's a lot of stuff that our government declares legal, but it's immoral. Um, don't buy into that. But narcissism, uh, it, 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 it's, it's prevalent in the church, too. I want things my way. Everything has to work for my benefit. Rather than seeing yourself as a part of the chosen people of God, a community of faith. And again, our, our government was not set up uh, to undergird narcissism. It's set up to create a, a well, you know, Virginia and Pennsylvania, they don't call themselves states. They call themselves commonwealths. That's a great word. The commonwealth of all the people. Uh, the common, not just meaning money, but the, the healthiness of the entire community. Well, that's the church is a commonwealth. Uh, if somebody, the Bible says if somebody's hurting, the whole body should be hurting and helping that person. You know, it was the church of Jesus Christ before World War II that did all of the charity and social work in America, all the orphanages. Um, I was in a, on a retreat in Indonesia for two hours this morning from five to seven. Our presbytery in Indonesia had a retreat. So it was six to eight Sunday night. And, and we, we talked about how, um, uh, I just lost my train of thought. I'll come back to it. Um, oh, oh, yeah. We, we, we have this church planning movement. They're in Indonesia, and we go into villages, towns, and cities, and we plant a school, a medical clinic, and a church together. And it's out of this university in Jakarta called Palita Haripan University. And all of our teachers go free to the university, but they have to give us five years after they graduate. And so do all the doctors and nurses. They go to the medical school free. And then we send them to do a school, and it's called the SPH system, which is the best educational system in Indonesia. And then Siloam hospital system, that's the best medical care in Indonesia. And so everybody wants to go to our school and wants our medical care. And most of the Muslims are nominal. And so our teachers and doctors and nurses are inviting them to the church on Sunday. And there's always a, criti a critical mass the first Sunday that they meet because there's all of our teachers and doctors and nurses, so we know people are going to be there. And these church plants are, are taking off. And, you know, the Presbyterian Church in America was always at the forefront of holistic ministry. When we did missions overseas, there are so many Presbyterian hospitals around the world and universities that are now secularized. Um, Nelson Bell was a Presbyterian missionary. He was a medical doctor. And he went to China, and his son, uh, Clayton Bell, was my predecessor at Highland Park. And they were missionaries in China and really planted churches and did great work. And then they were kicked out when Mao took over. But I remember Clayton's son, Nelson, I got him to come on to my staff as an associate. He said, Ron, greatest thing happened. The Chinese government called our family. They're going to name that hospital my dad founded the L. Nelson Bell Hospital. And the whole Bell family went over there. This was about 2012. And um, so the Presbyterian Church has left that legacy. Universities here in the United States, Dartmouth, Columbia, Princeton, all were founded by University of South Carolina, founded by Presbyterians. University of Texas, founded by Presbyterians. But it was Christendom. They didn't feel like they always had to have it overtly a denominational thing because it was Christendom. 
And so you have, but the University of Texas is probably more spiritual than my alma mater, Trinity University. So, um, which was, or is supposedly a Presbyterian school. Okay. Um, I think I'll stop here. Give one more plug. Great commission, that's God's macro will. You're never going to figure out his micro will for your life until you get the macro part right. So I want all of you to become great commissioners, great commission folks. Be on team truth. You're taking the truth of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be formally trained to do that. If Christ is alive in you, you have a way to share that with people. One final story, and then we'll have questions. Some of you know who Keith Miller is. He was one of the founders of Laity Lodge, and he used to come here and speak a lot. He's Becky Pritchard's grandfather. He's dead now. He and I were good buddies. And one day, he and I were talking, and we were talking about evangelism. And he said, you know, I'll tell you, the hardest story of my life is he had a close friend who was dying of cancer. And his friend was Jewish. And he agonized over whether he should share Christ with him. He didn't want to offend him. And so he'd visit him, you know, every few days. And the guy was dying. He was terminal. And he said, one day I'm sitting there with my friend. And my friend turns to me and goes, Keith, aren't you a Christian? And Keith said, well, yeah. And he said, well, do you believe that if somebody doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ that there's no hope for eternal life for them? And Keith said, I was so uncomfortable. And I said, um, yeah, that's kind of a belief. And then he said to him, Keith, are you one of my best friends? He said, well, you know I am. Then his friend said, then why have you never shared what's the most important thing in the world with me? I'm sitting here dying. And... Uh, General Presbyter of Grace Presbytery in Dallas. I had a meeting one day with him. His name was Dave Wasserman. And he grew up half Jew. His mom was a Christian. And his father died a couple of days before I was to meet with him. And he had a flower on. He said, you probably don't know what this flower is. I said, no, I don't. He goes, well, my dad died. And it's a Jewish custom to wear this kind of flower. And he said, Ron, if my dad... If you were his son, you probably would have shared Christ with him, wouldn't you, before he died? I said, yeah. He said, you know, I didn't. I didn't. I feel bad about that. I said, well, the beauty of the Reformed faith is God needs no middleman. Holy Spirit might have regenerated his heart right at the moment of death. So, Dave, I don't know where your dad is, but all hope is not lost. So, the Great Commission, Beyond Team Truth. Well, let's see if there are questions. Spend the rest of the time. Questions about anything we've talked about the last six weeks or anything else. Why did our previous denomination You know what they said? This according to Bob. He said they see the Great Commission as colonialistic, oppressing people, as if they're, we have something and they need it and we're going to go in and give it to them. That's what they said. But they were dismantling the mission board for the last 60 years. They're pulling missionaries off the field, left and right, and sending people that... There was a, a woman, she's a graduate of Trinity University. She came to church here. She wanted to be a missionary, and Jim Singleton and I met with her, and we just quizzed her on the basic faith. She had no faith at all. And she was accepted by the PCUSA mission board, and to the credit of this church, we'd, we would not respond to her because she couldn't answer simple questions of faith. That's the kind of missionaries they were sending over there. That's why they started, the, Lewis helped start the Outreach Foundation to make sure we had evangelistic missionaries going out in the field. Other questions? So, Sean.
looking at paper that would be showing some classification of elements. And one day there was a paper that said classified. So the guy looked at this initial and said classified elements. A few minutes later the same paper came back. And said, this is a classified material. You are not supposed to read it. So erase the initial and initial the eraser. What? <laughs> I have my radio set to WAI, so if I drive anywhere, I get whatever is on. And so it was Mike Pompeo was being interviewed by, I don't know if it was Glenn Beck or Hannity, one of those. And he started talking about the deep state, and he said, this thing is far more vast and embedded than anybody realizes. And he said it was working against us when he was Secretary of State. He said, I issued a classified memo um, and uh, the people I sent it to heard about it first in the New York Times. It was published. Because somebody immediately leaked it. And he said, that's what we were working against. Um, you know, <laughs> freedom without form is chaos. The form had broken down. And, and it was actually, uh, you know, you, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive, you know. When I get a, when I get a, a, a check from the government, I feel more free. I've got more money to spend. I feel more free, but it's deceptive. I'm really, I'm being bought, and my it's all a part of really truncating my freedom. So you gotta, gotta be careful. Uh, other question, Bill. Actually, the PCUS, Southern Presbyterian Church, which this church was a member, church I was ordained into, was the fastest growing church in the 20th century from 1900 to 1956. Up until 1956, the PCUS, our Southern Presbyterian Church, baptized more adults than infants every year. You know how many people the average, I hate to kick a dead horse, but the average PCUSA church, you know how many average baptisms, adult and infants put together, the average church does? Anybody want to take a guess? Less than one. Less than one. It's like point, every church averaging it out, it's like 0.8 of a person <laughs> baptized per year per church. A good sign of church health is they do more adult baptisms than infant baptisms. There's nothing wrong with infant baptism. But, and this church does quite a few adult baptisms. We got, I've done one in here, I know. I'm getting ready to do another one. Somebody's sitting in here. Um, my church in Baltimore, we did probably, it was neck and neck, adult. We had so many new Christians coming in. That's growing the kingdom. That's common everywhere else in the world except here. I love doing adult baptisms. So, and we're, this church is healthy. Only 88% only of American churches are, are stagnant or dying. Only 12% are growing. Of that 12%, 11 of those 12% are shuffling sheep. They're getting members from other churches. Only 1% of American churches are doing kingdom growth, actually growing the kingdom. I said to my church in Dallas, I want us to be one of those 1% churches. And we became it. 
And I got on my knees and I asked our whole staff to pray that every one of our new member classes would be at least 30% new believers. And we uh, never missed that for about six years. One class was 100% new believers. And I was like, oh, Lord, thank you. So um, that's the Great Commission. Those are Great Commission churches. Question. Last week you talked about third mill and the courseware that might expand us being, uh, if you will, apostles and bringing behaviors we believe to the community. Would you like to talk about a little bit more about that, that offering courses here would help expand? Sure. Um, I call it the LZ Project. A uh, bunch of us, Dave West, um, and Bob Mitchell, um, some other elders, we've been involved. We feel like this is the largest church, uh, city in America without a seminary. We have Oblate School of Theology, but that's not really helping us at all. So we don't have a major seminary here, and we have a task force that I'm on here at the church that's working with the National Presbyterian Church of Mexico, which is bigger than all the Presbyterian churches in the United States put together. And they are evangelistic and they are growing. And, uh, but they're poor. And so your church, your tithe dollars fund full rides for nine Mexican seminary students every year. And um, most of the we have nine right now, and five are studying in Mexico, four in the U.S. But they want, the four in the U.S. have wound up with some pretty wild seminaries. Um, they didn't know any better, and they're not bad seminaries, but they're not the best. And so we thought, if we're going to pay for their education, we want to make sure they go to a good seminary. We're not trying to cancel them or censor them, but we want them to come out really with a good theological education. Some of these are going to be church planters, some pastors. So I started a conversation with Ligon Duncan, who's the Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary. They have about eight campuses around the country. And I said, Ligon, why don't you put a campus here? Ligon was the first LZ lecturer last February. And I said, we need that here. But we want it. All the other campuses are sort of preparing pastors for America. We're facing south. Our, Church history. We started as a, not as a, to be a church. John McCullough came here to, this was going to be the launching pad for the gospel into Mexico. And then some Protestants here. There's only one church in town, San Fernando Cathedral. So some Episcopalians, Methodists, and others said, Would you do a service for us? And he started doing services and it morphed into this church. But we've always faced south. And we partnered in the 19th and 20th centuries with the National Presbyterian Church of Mexico. This church planted about 55 Mexican Presbyterian churches north of the Rio Grande. In fact, it became a presbytery called Tex-Mex Presbytery. Then as they began to speak more English, they were absorbed into old Del Salvador Presbytery. I don't know the exact number that were around when I was ordained in 1979, but it was probably... I don't know, 35? How many are left? The Presbytery began to neglect them because they didn't have any money and they didn't vote right. So uh, we, and then the National Presbyterian Church of Mexico cut off all ties to the PCUSA. So when we got out, I was on the board of the World Reform Fellowship and on the board was Danny Ramirez, who's the moderator of the Mexican National Church, I said, Danny, we're out now. We used to have this partnership with you guys. Would you consider redoing that? He went to the General Assembly, and they okayed that. And we have a covenant now with the National Presbyterian Church of Mexico to help them plant churches, educate students, and whatever else God wants us to do. So I said to Ligon Duncan, I said, if we could have a campus of RTS here facing south, he said, Ron, we don't do Spanish very good. Well, that's where third millennium comes in. A former RTS professor, Richard Pratt, has founded this 
theological, their, their motto is theological education for everyone for free. And he's bankrolled by a lot of Disney people because he was on Orlando campus and he knows these folks. So it's theological education, not just a talking head. Their, their videos, you can go online and see them. And I, I haven't really looked at them yet, but he said, but we got all the graphics people from Disney to do all the stuff, and it's in 22 languages all over the world. And so Richard and Ligon started talking, and then Richard flew down here and met with the pastors of Redeemer Press and us, and we want in 2023 to establish a campus here. We don't know what it's going to be called yet, but it's going to train pastors and church planters, but also we start thinking about why don't we let that revamp our whole Christian education department in first press? I mean, if you're teaching a Sunday school class, you don't want to do that. You don't have to. But we want to make that available. Or if you're a layperson, I'd like to get a seminary degree, but I don't want to go be a pastor or anything. I just would like to learn a lot. You'll be able to do that for free. Um, so this thing is wet cement right now. We've got Bob and Paul Hahn, the new pastor at Redeemer, putting together a search committee to find a person who can come here and really ride herd on this thing and get it wired up And in 2023. So this, and it's going to be facing south primarily to, for the whole Latin America, for pastors and church planters, as well as our area here. And you know, I've, I said this before, Richard Pratt said something that changed my whole view of looking at the awfulness of the southern border. It's awful. It's killing people, bringing in drugs. You, it shouldn't be that way. But could it be in God's strange providence? You know, story of Joseph, what you meant for evil, what the drug cartels and our government has meant for evil. They're surveying the ones that get through here that they can talk to. Many of them are believers. And about half the believers are not Roman Catholic. They're Protestants. You see, the church is really going wildfire in South America. And they're coming here. And some of them are pastors. And so we thought, what if we can educate these folks and build them up? Could it be that that's going to be the saving grace of the American church? That's what's happened in Europe. Church was dead in Europe. We're now below Europe in terms of church health. Because immigrants have come into Europe, and many of them are believers, and they've come on fire for Christ. And they're revamping churches across, especially in Great Britain. So maybe there's hope for in, in this. I want it shut down. But there's millions here of believers, and maybe they will be the leaven in the loaf that bring us out of the doldrum. We're going to need help, folks. The government is going to be against us. It may be people from Uruguay and Honduras who stand on the floor of Senate committees and say, no, while we're over here going, okay. Any more questions? <laughs> Might be more about penguins than you wanted to know. key elements in, in baptizing an adult? Well, it's somebody who was not a Christian came to faith in Christ. You know, they do studies of these people. Eighty-some percent of people that come to Christ do so not at a Billy Graham crusade or not tent revivals or some evangelistic campaign. Eighty-some percent come to faith in Christ by sitting in a pew in a church where the gospel is faithfully preached. Some of you know Sheila Fagora, Bob's assistant. When I, when I came here, I didn't know, she wasn't here when I was an associate pastor. And she was uh, an elder in the church. Well, I go and visit all the elders on, at their office or their home. And I said, Sheila, tell me your story. And she said, well, you know, I grew up in Westminster Presbyterian Church down by the Lone Star Brewery. But as soon as I got to college, I, be, I became an atheist and was, I never darkened the door of a church again. She married Ray Figura, who was the elephant man at the zoo. Ray was a nominal Roman Catholic. And they had a home in Almas Park. They had a back house. 
it's illegal to rent your back house to anybody in Almas Park. They didn't know this. So a young man came and said, could I rent your back house? They said, sure. And she said, Ray and I never went to church Sunday morning. We just laid around. And she said, one Sunday morning, I was reading the, the paper. It's this young man. And he said, um, you know, I've been here now a few months. I notice you and your husband don't go to church. And Sheila says, inside, I'm thinking, it's none of your business. What do you care? And he said, you know, you really ought to be going to a church. She said, we don't do church. Leave us alone. And up your rent. And next Sunday, the guy's knocking the door. Says, you really ought to be going to church. Would you go to church with me? Sheila says, no, I'm not going to go to church with you. I don't want to go to church. And he went away. Third Sunday, he's knocking the door. She's about to wring his neck. He says, please, go to church with me. She says, if I tell you I'll go to church with you next week, will you leave me alone after that? He said, I will. So the next Sunday... She got dressed. He knocks on the door. And they're driving downtown. He says, I'm a member of First Baptist Church. And Sheila said, oh, that's nice. I, I grew up in Westminster Presbyterian. And the guy says, well, I'm not going to take you to my church then. I'm going to take you to that First Presbyterian Church. And she said, all the way down, he's asking me why I don't go to church, and I'm giving him all these excuses why I don't go. And we decided to go to First President. She said, I was, she said, I didn't pray, but I was hoping that it would be a total disaster, like the people would be mean and give her more excuses. And she, they walked up the front and used to come up in the church with the front steps. And uh, people were so friendly, greeting them. She said, ah. And somebody handed them a bulletin. They were, escorted them to a seat. And Lewis was leading the service. And she's sitting there. An atheist, after riding downtown, giving this guy every excuse in the book why she doesn't go to church, and she opens the bulletin, and the title of Lewis's sermon is No More Excuses. <laughs> she said, I never missed a Sunday since then. Um, now, she was probably baptized at Westminster Prison. She was a kid, but that's what happens. People wander in here. Um, the anecdotal stories I can remember most in every church I've served is somebody said, hey, Ron, that guy, he lives over the back fence from me. I brought him this week. And they wind up coming and making a profession of faith. And, uh, so. Other questions? Got a few minutes more. We, now, if you've been baptized as a child in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you don't need to be rebaptized. I had a woman in my church in Baltimore. She came to me. She said, I want to be baptized, rebaptized. I said, Well, tell me your story. Well, she grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, and she didn't believe the Roman Catholic Church. Probably a third of my church in Baltimore is former Roman Catholics who said, You know, we never heard the gospel. We come here, and they liked our church because our service is similar to here. It was more of a formal church of Scotland, whereas the Catholic church had gotten folk mass and everything. They didn't like that, so they came to Central Press. And um, she said, well, I said, let me give you the reasons why I don't think you need to be rebaptized. And I gave her all the reasons. And she said, well, I don't think my parents were believers, so they never really, you know, they said all the right words. And I said, look, it. I, I gave her a little, I got a little booklet on why you don't need to be rebaptized. Look, read this, and in two weeks we'll meet again. Look, it. I don't think you need to be, but I don't want you going for the rest of your life wondering, am I really baptized or not? And so pastorally, if you can't move to where I am on this, I'll do it. She came back in two weeks and said, I can't move there. I just, so rather than her agonizing, I rebaptized her. But she didn't need to be. She's got a double. Now, if you tried to join the Baptist church, they would require you. They wouldn't reckon if you were baptized as an infant. Try to join a Roman Catholic church, they'll say, have you been baptized? Yeah, first prayer. Fine, you're in. If a Roman Catholic comes here, have you been baptized? Yeah, you're in. We don't 
Presbyterians and Roman Catholics recognize each other's baptism. You don't need to be rebaptized. What, what if I had somebody come to me and say, the pastor that baptized me when I was a little kid turned out to be a you know, false guy. Uh, they had a big debate in the early church. There was a group in the church called the Donatists, and they were like, <laughs> they, they were over, over here. Everything had to be... <laughs> And uh, there were a lot of priests in the early church that were not believers, and they were, you know, running around doing all kinds of stuff. And uh, the Donatists said, you know, baptism and communion is not valid, taken from the hands of these crooks that are in clerical clothing. Augustine got up and debated them, and he said, you know, the efficacy of the sacrament, baptism or the Lord's Supper, lies in the promises of God and the faith of the individual receiving it, not the person giving it. So if you were married by somebody who turned out to be a charlatan or you were baptized, no, it's still valid. I, I'm with Augustine on that. And uh, if you worried about whether your parents really meant the vows they took, doesn't matter. If you reaffirm those vows, then the sacrament's valid. You don't need to be rebaptized. Now, I could bring in a Baptist friend of mine who would say, yes, you do. But Jim Dennison is one of my best friends. He's a Baptist pastor. He, I said, we would jokingly talk about baptism all the time. I said, Jim, I think I've said this in here before, so humor me. I said, you know, Jim, you only believe in immersion. About, yes, it has to be immersion. I said, what if I got up to my knees? Not good enough. What about my waist? Not good enough. What about up to my neck? No. What about right up here so only the top of my head is showing? He said, not good enough. I said, oh, so it really is all about that top part of that. That's where we, that's where we put the water. Time for one more question. The question you're dying to ask. Hearing none? <laughs> Pray for our country, pray for our church, the church of the capital C. It ain't going to always be this way. Lewis used to say, all the, this too will pass. And we're going through a, a, a dark time in the nation, in life of our nation. I tr the pendulum tends to swing back, correct? Only God can do that. We can't make it happen spiritually, militarily, economically, or politically. If we stay on the macro will of God, quit worrying about so much if you get all the right people elected and go out and make disciples, and pretty soon a critical mass begins to emerge of Christians. That's the hope for China. You know, China's the largest Christian nation in the world. More Christians there than anywhere else. And I think that's why Xi is cracking down. He sees he's losing control of his country. And... Um, okay because the Christians are saying no. And so I'm no expert on China, but I listen to this guy, Gordon Chang, who's sometimes interviewed, he's Chinese guy. He says he gives China about five years. Things are going to collapse. I don't know. Only God knows. Let's pray. Lord, you are sovereign. Um, the, the story of the Bible, you take us through the wilderness and bring us into the promised land. And we rebel against you and kick at the goads. And you raise up prophets and judges, and we kick them in the mouth. But then sometimes we turn around and repent. But then 20 years later, we're back into the same ditch again. And that's pretty much human nature. But we're glad your nature is a nature of grace. We get not what we deserve, but what we don't deserve. And so, Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for your church. Bring home Christ's last words to us that they might be our marching orders. That's your macro will. And then give us your call, exactly how we're to carry that out from a quiet, behind-the-scenes ministry in our office or classroom or to the neighbor across the street or to become involved in a, the next Franklin Graham crusade that comes to San Antonio. We, we don't know. But fine-tune our ears of faith.
to your still small voice, that we might hear it above all the cacophony of the world's voices and give us the courage to faithfully do what you've called us to do, that we might truly be Christ's men and women wherever we are. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.